0: In 1971, at a meeting in Jerusalem, the city council members were up in arms. But they were not shouting about the budget or tax increases or policing. They were voting on a playground. Specifically, they were voting on whether to build a giant, climbable sculpture. And this sculpture, this this thing, was weird. It was going to have this heaving black and white blob for a body, with two mismatched eyes, one in a star shape, the other just staring off into space. And sticking out of this enormous blob's mouth would be three bright red tongues, which would double as slides. The sculpture would be called Gollum. And frankly, the city council members were worried it was going to scare the crap out of the local kids. So the designer of the sculpture appeared in front of the commission. She was there to defend her idea. She said, sure, the golem might be a little weird, a little creepy, but it is good for kids to get a little freaked out, as long as it's in a safe environment. Maybe the golem could help the kids conquer their fears, transform something weird and creepy into something joyous and playful. I'm Dylan Thuris, and this is Atlas Obscura. A celebration of the world's strange, incredible, and wondrous places. Today, we peek into the life and work of the artist behind this strange playground sculpture. Nikki de St. Fall.
1: She was such an important part of avant-garde circles. Incredibly radical, so exciting, and so deeply under
0: Stunning state parks, authentic Western culture, and other historic sites, along with the tales of famous outlaws like Butch Cassidy and pioneers like Buffalo Bill Cody. The truth lies West. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com.
2: You like to watch new
1: stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time.
2: When I was quite young, I saw a film called Rashomon, a Japanese film which showed the rape and murder of a young woman.
0: These are Nikki de St. Fall's words. They're the first words in the book, what is now known was once only imagined, an autobiography of Nikki de St. Fall.
2: Three witnesses tell the story of what they saw. Each version is totally different. Which version was true? All of them? None of them? Is perceiving only personal? Does that mean my version is only mine? Where does that put reality? Does it exist? Do I exist? Is life a dream? My dream that I can choose to make into a nightmare or a song?
0: Strangely, although it's called an autobiography, there's actually a different author of the book, Nicole Rudick. She read the passages here. Although it's probably more accurate to describe Nicole as kind of a collaborator than just an author. The biography Nicole wrote is actually a composition of St. Paul's own work and writings, which Nicole collected and ordered.
2: All I had to go on then was what she had written down in some form or another.
0: St. Paul made a lot of work on paper that involved words and writing.
2: And in that writing was her autobiography. And it's her story, not anybody else's. So then it was just really her and me, in a sense, working on the book. Her voice was so strong that I didn't want anybody else's to dilute her own voice.
0: Over the decades, critics, journalists, writers have all retold St. Paul's story over and over again. In an L.A. Times profile of the artist from 1998, the author writes, Sweet-tempered and lovable as St. Paul's art may appear— It's the product of deep conflicts and convictions, the work of a disarmingly unpretentious artist who confesses to being motivated by guilt and a need to prove herself. Michelle White, who is a senior curator at the Menil Collection in Houston, Texas, does not love that characterization.
1: It just makes me so sad. And that is exactly what happened to how St. Paul was understood. Her work is read. As a female artist, it's coming out as her body, as being emotional, as being sort of tied to a painful biography versus an intellectual contribution to a field. I'm not saying an artist's biography doesn't inform their work. I just shy away from it because I think it's been overly determinative in the interpretation of St. Paul's work.
0: So let's talk about some of that work, divorced from her biography. Michelle says that St. Paul developed her signature style in the same era as many of our great artists, the 1960s. The Beatles are on the radio. Hippies are putting flowers into guns. The entire world is changing. And Nikki de St. Paul is making art with balloons and a twenty-two caliber rifle. She filled the balloons with paint hung them up on a surface, and opened fire.
1: So when her bullet would pierce these bags of paint, it would punctuate and splatter the work of art to create these incredible compositions. Compositions that were joyful, but also incredibly violent. Works that were a critique of the patriarchy, the critique of the history of painting, and how men have dominated that story in the past. But at the same time, yielding these really exciting, vibrant, extraordinary composition.
0: She also invited people to take part in her work. Like this one piece where she set up an artwork and placed a table full of darts in front of it. Visitors were meant to walk up, grab a dart, and throw it at the artwork.
1: She's doing something really unique within the history of art. She's asking you as the audience to participate in the creation of the work. This really was such a new and novel idea in 1961. So St. Fall is at the forefront of these ideas.
0: In 1966, St. Fall made perhaps her most sensational work yet, an 82-foot-long, massive reclining sculpture of a woman, lying on her back, legs spread apart. The mega-sculpture was called Han.
1: And mean, talk about, like, the artist entering Our consciousness, you entered the sculpture through the female body's parted legs quite scandalously. The press went crazy for this uh, project. It was in all international newspapers.
0: You could go inside of the sculpture. Inside the Han, there were things you could do for fun. There was a little movie theater. There was a lounge. You could poke your head out of a small hole and just get a view of the massive undulating, colorful landscape that was the sculpture's body. People moved through the work of art. They participated in it. Han was one of St. Paul's most significant works to date. A few years later, the sculpture curator at an Israeli art museum approached St. Paul about building a large-scale work on the museum's property, a sculptural playground for kids. St. Paul liked the idea, but she wanted to do something a a little different. And so the idea for the Gollum this black and white oddball monster with mismatched eyes and three gargantuan tongues was born St. Paul insisted that the Gollum be built in an area with a large open space outdoors and in a less affluent part of the city So the curator suggested Rabinovich Park in Jerusalem. For St. Paul it was the perfect location She had just one more hurdle to jump Which takes us back to that meeting room, where the Jerusalem City Council was preparing to vote on whether or not the Gollum would grace their local playground. They'd heard Nikki de St. Paul's arguments. Han had been on the news. The shooting paintings had made a literal splash. So the council voted again, and this time they changed their minds. Gollum would be built in all of its three-tongued, black-and-white, blobby glory.
1: It's whimsical, it's funny, it's playful, it's absolutely magical. It's also backed by some really interesting questions about how fear and notions of the grotesque can also be used to question the world around us.
0: When the Gollum opened in 1972, it was an instant hit. The hand-wringing city council members, they really had nothing to worry about. In fact, on the day of the unveiling, the mayor had planned to inaugurate it by sliding down one of the three tongue slides, but it was so full of kids that he couldn't get on. The same mayor would later write a letter to St. Paul, telling her that the Gollum received more visitors every year than the Western Wall. The Gollum was St. Paul's first architectural playground. And it would be the first stepping stone on the way to many more outdoor sculptures, including her magnum opus, The Tarot Garden, this shimmering, mystical sculpture park in Italy with larger-than-life figures, pools, and mosaics, a work that would appear in magazine articles and tourist destination lists and art books. And this creepy, kind of goofy, strange black-and-white blob in a park in Jerusalem laid the foundation. In her own words, Nikki de Saint Fall said, I made a three tongued monster which spits the kids out. I'm really proud of it. Nobody knew me in Jerusalem. I called it the Gollum, but they all call it the monster. And it's the work itself that's known, not the artist. That was a triumph for me. Nikki de Saint Fall died in 2002. But her work remains scattered around the world. You can still visit her public sculptures in places across the globe, from Japan to Germany to the United States, and of course, the Gollum in Israel. If you want to learn more about Nikki de St. Fall's biography, I recommend checking out Nicole Rudick's book, What is Now Known Was Once Only Imagined, an autobiography of Nikki de St. Fall, where you can hear the artist's story in her own words. This episode was produced by
2: Johanna Mayer.
0: Our podcast is a co-production of Atlas Obscura and Stitcher Studios. The production team includes Doug Baldinger,
1: Chris Naka,
2: Camille Stanley, Manolo Morales,
0: Baudelaire,
1: Gabby Gladney.
0: Our technical director is Casey Holford. This episode was mixed by Luce Fleming. If you want to learn more, be sure to visit atlasobscura.com. There's a link in our episode description. And our theme and end credit music is by Sam Tyndall. I'm Dylan Thuris, wishing you all the wonder in the world. I will see you next time. NetCredit is here to say yes to a personal loan or line of credit when other lenders say no. Apply in minutes and get a decision as soon as the same day. Loans offered by NetCredit or lending partner banks and serviced by NetCredit. Applications subject to review and approval. Learn more at netcredit.com slash partner. NetCredit. Credit to the people. The world isn't wide enough for those with an insatiable desire for discovery. The all-new 2024 Lincoln Nautilus hybrid SUV offers the power and freedom to explore further and deeper than ever before. Intuitive, smart features ensure that you're always connected to the road ahead. Inside, a thoughtfully designed cabin immerses you in a universe that is all your own. The larger-than-life panoramic display spans the entire width of the cabin. It's customizable and interactive. Drivers can even personalize their backgrounds with a series of nature-inspired themes. This vehicle signals the arrival of an exciting new chapter for Lincoln. Discover more about the 2024 Lincoln Nautilus at Lincoln.com.